from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Uh, and Zach, before we jump into our topic today, looking at the uh, year-end trends and sort of what happened in 2018, I uh, just wanted to quickly sort of you know, chat about what we're drinking. So what have you been drinking recently? Oh, that's a good question. Well, you know, Adam, since we both relatively recently got back from Italy, I, I haven't quite been able to shake the uh, the Italian wine bug, um, which fortunately is not nearly as contagious as whatever was going around the plane I was on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I've been really finding myself um, into uh, Sangiovese. And I would say not necessarily so much um, the really, really typical Chianti Classico or, or Brunello di Montalcino, um, but I've been I've been sort of enjoying some Sangiovese from uh, neighboring um, Umbria, and just there's something about the they're sort of a little bit uh, they're just kind of like a little bit more uh, dark, a uh, little bit deeper fruit profile, and just kind of like. You know they're kind of a little funky and weird, and um, I even had one that's a like a carbonic maceration, uh, so made kind of like Beaujolais, um, which make prompts of eye rolls for me occasionally, but it was actually really kind of fun and, and just sort of a nice uh, like transition back into my gray dreary life here in Seattle as opposed <laughs> to well, I mean just weather wise, um, <laughs> and as opposed to and, you know it kind of brings back memories of being in Italy. So how about you? What have you been drinking lately? Well, good. I mean, I've I've been drinking a lot, but I mean, I think I think. <laughs> Well, I mean, that what goes I, without saying. What I've been, instead of talking about what I've been drinking, I want to complain a little bit. Oh, okay. So uh, a, few, a few days ago, I went to one of these like Christmas-themed pop-up bars. Oh, no. Um, I'm just – I'm over them, man. I think that the whole idea of these like themed cocktail bar things is just – uh, the worst excuse to sell me a, a shitty cocktail for $18 that you don't know how to make. And w- this cocktail bar that I was at is one that's like garnered a lot of critical acclaim over the years. They've actually like franchised it out. So oh, man. they take the bar concept and they sell it to cocktail bars all over the world actually. So for like the month of December, you can buy their recipes, you can use their glassware, you can uh, use their menus if you want. And like I mean, the drinks we had last night – were gross, like gross. And they were $18 a cocktail. And I just, I kind of want us to be over it. You know, like if if this is what we've come to in cocktail culture, where like the way we think that we're being innovative is that we're doing, you know, themed, you know, cocktail pop-ups like a Star Wars bar or a, you know, Stranger Things bar or, you know, Christmas Miracle on X Street bar. Um, That's where I was, by the way. I just, (laughs) I, I, I think we've kind of lost our way. So I'm drinking tears. That's what I'm drinking uh, right that's now. Unfortunate. Uh, so tears I have- for tears for the, the the world of mixology because you know we we got to try harder. So I have a question about this because I I've, this is like a phenomenon that obviously I've seen but not participated in, and I wonder like do people actually enjoy their experience there and i don't mean you obviously you didn't but like do you get the sense that people are really enjoying themselves or is it one of these yeah they're no totally they are i think that but but they're enjoying themselves for the i mean if i've taught you nothing on this podcast (laughs) oh yes i hope i know i know the words that are coming next they do it for the gram of course but that's not enjoying it that's just 
posing as if you do on social media. But I mean, you're there. You can look them in their dead, soulless eyes and see if they're actually enjoying their experience. And I'm assuming that if the cocktail, yeah, well, what is there any difference these days? I guess not. Now, now this is like the drink curmudgeon podcast. I wasn't expecting to, (laughs) I wasn't expecting to move to that phase of my career this quickly. It's just funny. It's just funny. I just, it was just, it was such an interesting experience because the cocktails are just so uninspired and, you know, the only reason that they're interesting is because they're being served out of, you know, themed glasses. So each cocktail has its own specific glass. Like I ordered the Hanukkah cocktail and it was served out of a glass covered in dreidels with a little plastic dreidel inside the cocktail. And like the whole time I'm sitting there being like, huh, this reminds me of like the hand grenades you drink on the street in New Orleans, but we, you know, poo-poo those as being kitschy, yada, yada. But like, this is okay. It's all the same, except that the hand grenade at least only cost me $5. Yeah, and you can walk down the street drinking it. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, I think we just got to stop. Well, I'm on board. We got to stop. We got to stop. You know, (laughs) this is not, it's not, the, the world of mixology shouldn't also be like the world of Disney. Yeah, well, and it's also like, that takes essentially zero creativity. Like, wow, the Hanukkah cocktail is going to have dreidels. Like, I mean, we can't like, st- there's not like, uh, you know, I assume it wasn't like latka flavored or something, right? It was probably just, no, that would have been cocktail. cool. It was just terrible yeah. flavored. No, Literally it was, it was so bad that I like choked it down because uh, the person I was with, she was like, oh, why are you drinking? And I was like, because it was $18. <laughs> so I need to drink this. Yeah. Like, least, I'm not about to dump an $18 cocktail. And, the, and she's like, well, do you want to send it back? And I said, well, let me taste yours. It's like, nope, yours just is just <laughs> as bad. So there, so therefore we just got to drink these and leave because I'm not yeah. about to like drink anything else that's, that's any better. All right. Well, I am scratching themed cocktail pop-ups off of our year in review list because it seems like we've already covered our distaste for those. But we do have, a, a, I think, a lot of interesting topics to talk about and uh, th- of things that came up in 2018. And I think the place I want to start, because to me, it's um, it's the most, I mean, I, I don't want to get too broad and political here, but I think it's the it's maybe in some way the, the biggest question in the in the beverage industry broadly is, um, you know, the imposition of all these various tariffs, both on um, imported potentially uh, alcohol, also the effect that a reciprocal trade war might have on American exports of beverage and stuff like that. And Again, you and I are, I assume, not economists. I sure am not. And I can't talk about this from the perspective of, like, is this good trade policy, although my suspicion is no. But but just in terms of, like, its impact on the on the drinks world, I think we, we've seen a little bit of it in 2018. I'm scared about what 2019 will bring, though. Yeah, I don't think we've seen enough of it yet in 2018. I think there's been a lot of speculation. Um, I think, you know, you, you have a lot of producers – screaming that it's going to impact them, but we haven't really felt that impact yet. But I think we will in 2019 if this continues. Uh, I think, you know, first and foremost, there has to be a broader understanding of actually how tariffs work by the people in charge of saying they're going to place those tariffs. Yeah, good uh, luck on that. Because, you know, the EU, <laughs> the EU is actually the people that we would place the tariffs on, not the individual countries, but that's okay. Uh, you know, so, sometimes people learn with coloring books instead of with real books. But, um, you know, I do think that uh, it, it, it remains to be seen. I don't think it'd be a great thing, but, you know, it is something that, that's possible, right? I mean, especially I think the one that, that really maybe the most dramatically affected is going to be American bourbon because the, you know, the majority leader of the Senate, that's his state. Uh, and so if, 
China or another country would like to retaliate, it's probably the easiest state to retaliate against because they will still hold, you know, that, that party, his party will still hold the majority in the Senate, will be in charge of controlling a lot of legislation. And so therefore trying to punish the state that he is, you know, elected in, uh, Mitch McConnell might be the most effective for them to try to stop the tariffs being passed against their goods. Um, but you know, French wine prices rising, Spanish wine prices rising, Italian wine prices rising. I'm not totally sure that's absolutely going to happen. And if it does, um, I don't think that we will care as much as an American society as we will if it affects the, pro- the products we actually make, like if bourbon you know, can't be uh, exported as easily. Yeah, well, and I think that's a really good point because a, a thing that's not always talked about in the world of American spirits and especially in bourbon and whiskey more broadly is how important the overseas markets have become to those um, to those producers. You know, there's obviously a tremendous um, thirst, I suppose, for, for brown spirits here in uh, the United States, and, and obviously bourbon is a huge part of that. But a lot of the growth that's happened in the last half decade or so has happened in Europe, it's happened in Asia. And if there are serious barriers to um, exporting those goods um, to those countries or those regions, that's going to yeah have a huge impact on a lot of the producers, especially those who have you know kind of leveraged themselves to to ramp up production. Because again, you know, making bourbon, even uh, not stuff with an age statement to to talk about, you know, something we, you and I discussed way back when. You know, even the the stuff that you can release in a couple of years, it still takes lead time. You've got to you know. Uh, ramp up your production, you've got to, you know, buy new equipment and hire new staff and stuff like that. And if suddenly the market drops out, there's going to be some distillers and some um, export companies that are, you know, left hole in the bag. And and, uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. And and maybe, maybe it's more something to keep an eye on for 2019 than than something to talk about as as a part of um, what has actually definitively happened in 2018. But obviously, the impetus for it will have been in this year. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, that's that's definitely something to pay attention to in 2019 to see to see how everything is affected. I think uh, you know a broader theme of what happened in 2018 that's a continuation is really just this ongoing march of climate change, right? Um, and I think uh, everyone now across the world sort of is accepting at least in, in the production of wine, beer, and uh, spirits is accepting that this is a real thing. But I think we really saw it this year. Uh, pretty dramatically in the wildfires that continued to just devastate California. Um, and, you know, while I think we thought that last year in, in 2017 was going to be the worst of it when, you know, the fires really came close to Napa and affected a lot of wineries, it was even worse this year. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's the first time that I've heard Californians tell me that they don't think it's going to get better. Uh, they think that this is going to continue. And I think that that's something that we're going to really have to think about uh, as we move into 2019 in terms of how we deal with climate change. And you know, are we going to actually pay attention? Or are we going to let a lot of these industries continue to suffer? Yeah, it's it's a really, I mean, this is not saying anything profound. It's an incredibly complicated issue. And it's an incredibly complicated issue because there's so much uncertainty. You know, it's not just that you can make a very simplistic model and say it's going to be 10 degrees warmer in this region in 50 years or whatever, but it's all the uncertainty and all the variability there with, you know, in between. So, you know, whether it's drought, whether it's flooding, whether it's fire, whether it's frost, whether it's, you know, excessive snow, you know, there's possibilities for many different wine regions in the U.S. and globally to be affected by, um, you know, things that were at most a very, very rare occurrence, you know, uh, catastrophic flooding or something like that. And, you know, the, the advantage especially on the wine side, is that grapes are and vines are pretty hardy 
and um, they're pretty tough and it, and they don't and they grow in more marginal climates they don't need as much water as lots of other crops so there are some ways in which uh, wine can be a little bit buffered against some of the the most severe impacts but there's no denying that yeah everyone the world over is for the first time um, you know in the last couple of years if um, you know across the across the board really starting to think about okay what does future planning look like for us you know what does it mean we need to start planting varietals that we never thought we could grow here do we need to look at you know parts of our vineyard that we uh, thought were too cold or um, do we need to start you know letting you know do we need to just plan in a way that no one has thought to plan before and again you know it's it's a scary and expensive proposition for a lot of these people. And it's also difficult because no one knows the answers. I mean, they're guesses, but that's all we've got. Yeah. I mean, I think it's crazy. I, I just, you know, we need to continue to support uh, California and other regions that are affected by these horrible fires and by uh, the other aspects of climate change and try to do something about it because, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's not going to get any better. I do say I will say though that one thing that is a positive that's come out of this, and, and you're starting to see uh, this is a sort of a diversification of the various um, beverage industries across a wider geographic swath. Uh, maybe, and you know, you see this even in the U.S. with you know uh, people planting vines all over the country, and you never know what part of the U.S. in 15 or 20 years might be suitable for wine production or you know growing hops or or whatever that at the moment is maybe not particularly ideal. And I think there's a there's a real benefit to, you know, playing, um, you know, playing on uh, as many, I'm not sure what I'm going for here, the analogy is breaking down, but, you know, sort of um, not putting all your eggs in one basket, but in, in not saying, okay, well, California is the wine region or the wine state in the United States, but that we're going to try and make quality wine in, you know, 15 or 20 or 30 states uh, over the next, you know, decade or so. And maybe a few of them will come to be critical players when, you know, there are vintages in California or in much of California that are just <laughs> not, don't, don't do it. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, one more, I think 2018, uh, large development that really affects the financial uh, world of wine, beer, and cocktails is the, you know, the broader legalization of of cannabis, right? So we saw uh, Canada fully legalized. We saw Constellation, um, you know, invest in cannabis production in Canada. For those who, of you who don't know who Constellation is, Constellation is one of the largest uh, producers of beer, spirits, wine in the United States. They own Corona. Um, they also own uh, Ballast Point Brewery. They own uh, lots of different wine brands. Uh, I think I believe Kim Crawford, a few others, those that I can't name uh, off the top of my head, but they're a huge, huge, huge producer of alcohol in the United States, uh, and they invested pretty heavily in cannabis production in Canada. You saw, obviously, you know, California come online as a legal state. Uh, I think you're going to see many, many more uh, states in the United States legalize cannabis. Uh, you know in order to collect tax dollars, obviously. And the conversation that, you know, continued at a, at a furious pace in 2018 in the alcohol world is, is this going to eat away market share from alcohol? Uh, at least, you know, as of right now, the data doesn't really show that that's happening. But, you know, who's to say in 2019? Yeah, I think there's like a couple of really fascinating trends here. The first is obviously this sort of question of, you know, how much um, let's say speculation in the cannabis market are these big companies going to do? And I think the answer is a lot. I think they can all read the writing on the wall that you know more and more U.S. states are going to legalize marijuana um, and cannabis. I 
you would have to imagine that at some point that might be something that happens nationally here in the U.S., although it's a little hard to imagine at the moment. Um, and uh, there's just there's an incredible demand for it. And these companies are, you know, generally speaking, not dumb, and they can, you know, they can follow trends um, just like you and I can. And so it's not surprising to me. I think the two the two things that are that are most interesting to me. One is, yeah, that question of is it going to affect alcohol sales? And I kind of have to think not. Like people like drinking, people like marijuana. And I don't think they are going to stop liking either of those things just because the other one is now legal. Now, will it have some effect at the margin? Possibly, but I, I just I, I don't I don't buy it. I mean I think I think it's not going to be significant enough to to you know sort of uh, validate these you know these prophecies of doom that you hear from certain corners of the beverage industry. And then the other one is sort of this actual combination of cannabis and alcohol into one product. And, you know, there's some legal hurdles here in the United States um, as far as, you know, having any like quantity of THC in a in an alcoholic beverage in uh, I think most of the U.S., if not all in uh, most states that have legalized marijuana, if not all. But it's definitely something that people are trying to do. My question is, I don't think it's going to taste good. Now, that may not be a a barrier for people. But uh, but it definitely is it definitely is something that you again we're just seeing more and more of. I'm sure you guys get um, you know plenty of samples and press and uh, press well maybe not samples in New York but at least uh, press releases about uh, the various yeah products. we get we get lots of press releases. I do think like the biggest issue people have been concerned about of it eating away market share at least in my mind right now isn't. Uh, totally relevant because I think the the use cases for most of these products are different. I don't really think that most people sit and smoke a joint pairing it with their dinner. Uh, <laughs> you do how I mean maybe you'd smoke a joint to get you know, to be able to eat more dinner. Uh, but then once you're at dinner, most people are still looking for a nice beer, a really, you know, beautiful bottle of wine to, to pair along with. I think also in a lot of social settings, you know, birthday parties, et cetera, alcohol still is the beverage of choice, the, the inebriation vehicle of choice, if you will. Um, I do think that, you know, marijuana has a, a separate uh, use case for the most part. So I think that, you know, those who, who choose marijuana will, will be people who would have always chosen marijuana and probably have been choosing it for a while while it's even been illegal. Um, and I think those who, you know, choose alcohol for certain social situations will continue to choose it. Um, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting, but I, I still think it's, it's way too early to tell. And, and the one thing that has been crazy to watch in 2018 that I think will continue to 2019 is just this, fear among most alcohol producers that I'm not really sure whether or not it is warranted yet. So, you know, I, I, I take a more like, let's, let's wait and see approach instead of a, Oh my God, it's all burning down. But I think most people are, yeah, we, we save that approach for climate down. change. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so moving into some other, like uh, a few other things that happened this year, that I think were really interesting. Uh, the biggest thing in, in the beer world really was this move, uh, you know, by a lot of breweries, including, you know, most recently Stone into creating hard seltzers. Uh, and these hard, hard seltzers, I think, are like the, the future of, you know, carbonated beverage in, in the U.S., which is just nuts. Have you had one? Because I haven't, actually. I have tried one before. Um, here's what I'll say. I kind of have a feeling that we're going to look back on the hard seltzer craze the way I don't know. People a little bit older than us look back on something like Zima. Like, no, man, Zima's already back. You know I, that, right? I, mean, I have seen that. I'm still not sure it's actually selling anywhere. But um, I think there's a there's like a there's a little bit of a thing for hard seltzer, which is basically my thing is it's like I don't know who the target market is other than people who like just want to be drunk. 
and like it doesn't have much taste it's very generally speaking pretty low quality alcohol that goes into there that's how it's cheap and like I don't know. I'll mix my soda water and spirit of choice if that's the effect I want. I just, I, it's been hard for me to to believe that it's become a thing. But it is amazing how if you pitch anything as like healthy and also full of alcohol, then people will be on board. Well, you know, I mean, the reason it's become a thing is because yes, people think it's healthy, but then also I think a lot of these. The, just the entire water craze in America in general has helped, you know, the, the LaCroix movement, if you will, the Spindrift movement has really helped, uh, you know, push forward this, this idea of drinking flavored waters and these just happen to have alcohol in them. I agree with you. I'd rather put like a high quality vodka and mine are a little bit of gin. Um, you know, that's, I think that, that sounds more delicious, but I think, you know, for a lot of people, this has become just the inebriation vehicle of choice. And, you know, for a, a company like Sam Adams, right? Sam Adams saw, you know, all of the majority of its revenues this year come from its expansion into hard seltzer. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people are, are following suit, even in the craft beer world, which is, which is, I think, uh, a debate in and of itself, right? Like if you're a craft brewery that cares a lot about, uh, you know, high quality product and, uh, you know, the, the creation of these flavorful beverages, why are you now making basically Zima? Yeah. It, it's very weird. Uh, and I think I think you're right. I think we're going to all sort of look back on it in maybe five years and say, wow, that was a big mistake. But for now, it's money and people, you know, people want growth. Yeah. It's the same as, you know, you look at the the digital media world because that's the world that we're in. And so we look at it a lot. You know, there's there, it was a bad year for a lot of digital media properties, RIP Mike. Um but, you know, those digital media properties that went under were digital media properties that went under because they, you know, all pivoted to video and all ran to Facebook to, you know, for their growth. And those properties wound up going under when Facebook changed and decided it didn't want their their type of content anymore. And I think that's going to happen to a lot of these companies that are pivoting to hard seltzer. But, you know, I'm willing to be wrong, but I don't think I'm going to be. Yeah, I think the the other part of this, and, and this is going to come back to a topic of some sort that you and I talked about a long time ago, I think, with summer drinking, was sort of the idea that I think there's also an appeal to them, which is like, I get away with drinking out of a thing that looks like it's just soda water. Like, I could have this can on the street and no one will know. And, and there's, there is a certain appeal to that, right? Like, I get there's a, like, again, this sort of like very low level sort of publicly acceptable naughtiness. Oh, I'm drinking in public, but it's hard seltzer. So it's not that big a deal. Like you would probably get looked at strangely if you, even if, if not also be breaking the law in most places, if you pulled out a bottle of bourbon and had a swig from it on the street. But if you drink your can of, of hard seltzer, like even if someone notices what it is, they'll probably be like, oh, isn't that funny? And so there's a, there's a cachet to that. But I, again, I just, it's hard for me to believe that it will last, but you know what? Hard seltzer lovers come at us, and if in five years you're like the number one beverage in the market, then you know probably Adam and I will be out of jobs or something. <laughs> so, so the last topic I thought we'd talk about is probably the biggest thing that happened in the wine world in 2018, and uh, you are you know more I'd say certified to talk about it than <laughs> I am. Uh, that is the scandal of uh, the the cheating scandal around the master sommelier exam, right? So, uh, for those that were unaware that this occurred, right, this summer uh, an exam happened. How many twenty something people passed? Right, it was the uh, largest amount of yeah. So, so I'll, let me give the let me give the really the, the bare bones rundown. So, basically, in September, uh, the court of master sommeliers announced that twenty four uh, candidates had passed the exam and uh, been named master sommeliers, which is. Uh, 
awesome and unprecedented number. There were 56 people who sat for the exam. So it's a, obviously a part, it's partially a product of the growing um, popularity of the the court generally and the master sommelier exam in general or in particular, but also raised some eyebrows, including mine. I mean, I had questions right afterwards about this is a really high number of people to pass and it's a really high pass rate given the standard number this pass rate is usually more like 10 or 15 percent not over you know over 33 percent i mean almost 50 right if you're saying 50 yeah 20 yeah yeah 24 pass and i believe it was 56 i could be wrong about that so it's definitely it definitely raised some eyebrows and then what came out um about a month later uh six weeks later was essentially that one of the master sommeliers who had been involved in selecting the wines for the blind tasting portion of the exam had apparently disclosed some information. It's a little unclear, or at least hasn't been confirmed to this point, whether it was the exact wines or just helpful hints to perhaps some of the um, candidates that they had uh, assisted in and prepared uh, for the exam. So they had been both, you know, sort of mentoring people that they knew as well as had been involved in the proctoring of the exam. And so the, the, court decided after being made aware of this to invalidate all of the test results. So for not just the people who passed, but even the people who failed would be given an opportunity to um, retake. The most recent re-exam actually just recently happened. Six people ended up passing, um, all of whom I believe had passed previously. So it's a really messy situation. And and I want to be hesitant to make any statements of, of anything that is to make too many statements about what may or may not be true. What I will say are two two things about this. One is it's really unfortunate for the people who are involved because the vast majority of them, I strongly believe, are sort of innocent victims in most of this. There's a there is a I think small number of people who were made aware of these uh, wines beforehand who did not who chose not to make that fact known to the people proctoring the exam, and I think they should bear some guilt and and. It's a little curious to me that the court does not seem interested in figuring out who those people are because it doesn't seem like they sh- they're people who should be a part of the organization. But that is not my decision to make. The other thing I will say is, and I hate to say this, it really, really makes me sad, but I also have some real doubt that this is the first time this has happened. It's just the first time it's become public. Yeah, I think it's – I have some real doubt that it's the first time it's, it's happened either. And I think – like look – the biggest thing that came out of all this because, you know, people, the people that did retake, right? Six people now have passed who retook, right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. I mean, and they, did they disclose how many people chose to retake? I don't know the answer to that. I think there all were 20. All I saw was that six, cho- that six, that out of the 24 that were stripped, six passed having, de- take, having retaken it. Yeah. But I don't know if all 24 chose to retake and only six passed or, cause that would be crazy, right? That would be like, Whoa! Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Well, there um, are there are two more. So they they offered three different dates to retake. So this was the first one. So I believe some of the other uh, twenty four or twenty three actually. One of the people who was a, who had passed had already passed tasting. So they were kept their master sommelier title. It's complicated. This is not probably super interesting to most of you. But the point is, a number of other of the the candidates who had thought they had passed will get another will have other opportunities to retake. But I just want to say, like, I know several of those people personally, and I've talked to them, and and I just I can't. I can't tell you how, I mean, what that phone call must have been like. I mean, here you have, and it's part of what makes this whole response so hard to take for many of us in the community. Here you have people who have dedicated years of their lives, thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars to achieving this. They have achieved it. They've been told they've achieved it. They've spent six weeks being congratulated, you know, 
asking for raises, taking new jobs, and then six weeks later to be told, actually, we're removing this title from you in part because we don't necessarily feel like we can or maybe don't want to look too deeply into who exactly might have been a part of this cheating scandal. And instead, we're just going to blanket fail or not fail exactly, but uh, decertify all of you. There have been a lot of, I mean, again, I'm not going to say anything specific because it's a lot of conjecture and hearsay and things like that. But I will tell you that a lot of people I've talked to in the sommelier community around the country, people at various levels, have been really, really taken aback by that response. And there's a, the court has always been a little bit of a controversial figure in the broader sommelier community, in part because of a lot of the secrecy that surrounds the exams, the fact that there's very little transparency about there's no there's no scores made public. So so I'm, I'm going to digress really quickly. There's a comparable thing called the Master of Wine exam, right? And if you take the Master of Wine exam and you fail or pass, you get an exact breakdown of everything you did. You get scored on every part of the exam. You find out exactly what the wines are that you were tasting blind. And, and you know, you can compare what they were to what you called them. And you can look at that and say, I understand why I didn't meet the standard for this certification, with a court of master sommeliers at every level, not just at the master level, it's certified at advanced and at, and at master, you never find out what the wines are that you tasted blind. You get feedback, but the feedback isn't a score. It's not a you got 62 out of the 100 questions, right? You just get told if you passed or failed each individual component. And as a result, there's a lot of people who have been, I would say, have been skeptical that that that's, that system, that, tra- that uh, lack of transparency is good in the long run for the people taking the exam, the people administering the exam, and the community as a whole. And this episode brought a lot of that out into the daylight. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. And I think 2019 is going to be really interesting because I think we're going to continue to question uh, the the worth, the worthiness of certification. Yeah, and I think uh, that's I think it's you know. I think that that's going to be the big thing. And look, I think even, you know, this is, this would then talk about something else that happened in 2018. It was, it was two weeks ago. That's not really worth getting into, but even this, this Bobby Stuckey article that a lot of psalms were all up in arms with where he basically, you know, he's a very highly respected master sommelier, but you know, him saying that you should be an advanced sommelier to be able to work the floor uh, of, you know, top restaurants, I think is insane. And I think is, is just going to continue to fuel the fire of people saying, well, you're asking us to get a certification from an organization that is pretty smoke and mirrors, uh, if you will. And we're not really sure is credible. And, you know, we think we can do our jobs without it. And, and I do think that like, that's kind of what happens when you get so powerful, right? Like you've had this movie that some <laughs> that made you super cool and now all the kids wanted to do it. And eventually what happens when you get too cool is someone's going to take a few shots and that's what's starting to happen. And I think that, you know, in 2019, it may be the year that less people take the exam than have taken it previously. Maybe I'm going to be wrong, but I, I just, like you said, it, it's really hard to look at what happened and not think it's happened before. And the other thing that this scandal brought out that was really interesting to me and to other people here in the Vinepair headquarters was there was also, I, I'm not sure if you noticed this, Zach, there was this huge backlash in the industry against people taking the master SOM exam who weren't working the floor, but instead were working for distributors. Yeah. Well, so I think you're going to see that more and more that people are going to start to say, this 
if this is going to be a test that we take seriously, potentially it's not a test for everyone. Potentially it's only a test for those that work the floor. And again, then that gets sticky. Well, how, who are you to decide? And the sommelier, and you know, the guild of sommeliers is not going to like this because they make a lot of money from all those other people that take this exam. Yeah, it's definitely uh, an incredibly complicated thing. And, and you point out the one of the running threads of this whole scandal, which is the influence that um, distributors and especially the very large ones in this country and you know some of the other large beverage companies and the the very real financial stake that some of those companies have in various candidates um, who may work for them and the benefit of being able to say we have now a master sommelier or we now have two or three or four on our staff as opposed to you know no one gives a shit if you have seven advanced sommeliers on your staff i mean those people maybe you know passing the test does not necessarily actually make them any smarter or more qualified but it is a thing that sounds good whether you're putting it in a press release or you're uh, justifying a line item on a budget to a much larger uh you know on a, in a in a very large company or things like that you know you're justifying your fine wine division to some extent and so there's a lot of money potentially at stake there's a lot at risk and that goes back to explaining why there's a lot of there can be or at least theoretically has been pressure to say help people pass in the past and i think there's there's no real way to get that out i mean the the reality is the american beverage industry is largely dominated by a couple of companies and their influence is very very strong and there are very few parts of the country where that isn't felt and so to some extent there's a just a reality that they're going to have an undue uh, influence and if they if, as they seem to still consider master sommeliers to be prized commodities and they're going to pay people significant sums of money to go work for them instead of staying working in restaurants and they're going to offer those people twice the salary a much more relaxed work schedule you know maybe lots of other perks that a, re- a general that a restaurant or even a, a restaurant company can't compete with then you're going to see a continued migration of of people out of restaurants into those cushier positions and to some extent i don't have a problem with that like you work really hard to get to that level you decide that running bottles for the rest of your life you're not bobby stuckey and even he doesn't just do that he obviously owns a winery and several restaurants and things like that but you don't want to work the floor every night i mean i don't want to work the floor every night that's why i don't so much anymore um that's why I host a podcast, and uh, <laughs> and uh, the the so I don't begrudge people that, but I agree that we are the 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 site the rift that has been forming between various parts of the sommelier wine professional community in this country is widening, and this scandal, like I said, it didn't create the rift, it didn't, but it definitely widened it and brought it to the public eye in a way that it hadn't been before. And I think it's going to be ugly in 2019 because I agree with you. I think there's going to be there's a lot of bad feelings. There's a lot of bad blood. And especially if some of these people who passed the exam in 2018, the master exam in 2018, and do not pass it upon retaking or choose not to retake it, and they're they're going to potentially still call themselves master sommeliers, they're going to keep that title. The court does not necessarily have the ability to inf- to stop them from doing that legally. It's a it's going to be messy. Um, it'll be yep. probably make for lots of great entertainment for all of you. So I'm sure we'll be talking about it bath. again. <laughs> it's going to be a bloodbath. Yeah. Well, 2018 was a great year, Zach. I'm glad we started the podcast then. Um, looking forward to more in 2019. The one, the one prediction I'll make for 2019. Oh yeah, go. Is <laughs> the one prediction I will make for 2019 is that there will be a pop up cocktail bar that puts your miracle on whatever street experience to shame and I, by by which i mean it's going to be 
so much worse. Oh, totally. Can't wait. Till 2019. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. It's been an awesome year uh, producing this podcast for all of you uh, and a lot more really exciting things to come in 2019. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, guys. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.